the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon. It is a Thursday. In case you weren't keeping track, that means tomorrow's Friday. And uh, it's great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We're here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We're going to talk about a number of issues that are facing, well, not just folks in the United States, but specifically Californians in the first portion of our program tonight. And I want to begin by updating you on yet another tragic school shooting, this time in Southern California, as a third student is dead following a shooting at school in Santa Clarita. The victims are two 14-year-old boys and a 16-year-old girl. Several others were hurt in the shooting at Sagas High School in Santa Clarita. Among them is the 16-year-old gunman who is in grave condition after turning the gun on himself. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva says the teenage suspect is in critical condition and they have no answers yet. He shot himself before uh, first responders came up upon him. They knew that there was an active shooter when they arrived on scene. We'll figure out exactly what they saw at the time, but he turned the gun on himself before they had any chance to intervene. Few other kids from Saugus High School remain hospitalized. The suspect, as indicated, opened fire this morning on his 16th birthday. The sheriff says he's a student at the school but has not been publicly identified so far. Investigators say he used a semi-automatic 45 caliber handgun. Raising yet once again the question, where do these kids get these guns? There are many dynamics to this, and of course it remains a major public policy debate. Let's get some insights now. We're joined by Pete Peterson. Pete is dean and senior fellow at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. And Pete, always an honor and a privilege to have you join us. Great to be with you, Craig. It's uh, sad that we have to uh, meet again under such uh, dire circumstances. Uh, I'm sure for everyone, uh, not just parents, uh, our our hearts kind of fall to the floor every time we yet hear of another tragic shooting of this sort. And it seems to be uh, the the same issue repeated over and over and over again. And I have to wonder, uh, there there are clearly lines drawn here. California's tried to pass a few... um, get tough on guns measures. I'm not sure any of them are ultimately going to be all of that effective. Steadfastly, Washington, D.C. does nothing. And lying in the middle of these two uh, polar opposites are the parents, the children, all wondering, what can we, what should we do to address this issue? Yeah, that's right, Craig. I mean, this is just uh, so complex. And at least as it pertains to this particular story in Santa Clarita, which is only about a 45 or 50 minute drive here from from campus at Pepperdine. Uh, we still don't know. There's still a lot to learn about what actually happened here, uh, who the uh, assailant, the shooter actually is, um, how 
it appears to be he how he uh, got a hold of this uh, firearm, the weapons that he used, um, a lot to be learned. I must say, seeing some of the pictures of these kids uh, coming out of the high school, it reminds me we are here at Pepperdine just almost exactly a year after the borderline shooting down here uh, in Thousand Oaks, which uh, took the life lives of 12 Twelve people, mostly uh, students, including one of our own Pepperdine undergrads, Elena Housley. So there's a lot of flashbacks uh, that are happening here on campus at Pepperdine, I must say. At the end of the day, is this almost a, a, a dual-track issue? And by that, I mean that there is certainly the public policy angle of this. And, of course, those debates take place at the State House, uh, certainly at the Capitol. Um, we're wrestling through questions of, well, limiting and restricting access to guns, mental health-related issues, certainly the, the ever-present Second Amendment component of all of this. But I have to wonder if the second component is not a strong spiritual dynamic that perhaps we're just not effectively addressing, and that is getting to the core as to what motivates these kids, or any individual for that matter, to engage in these mass shootings. Uh, Granted, the phenomenon has been with us uh, almost steadfastly since Columbine of 20 years ago now, but if you go back 40 years ago, 50 years ago, two, three, four generations back, uh, if there were shootings, they took place on the battlefield at war. They didn't place, take place here in, in America. Is there a lack of, of, of perhaps cohesiveness in trying to draw out the dynamic here related to both public policy and the spiritual dynamic? I think you're so right, Craig. I mean, we are talking about human beings here. And as, as we know, as people of faith, uh, we are fallen, and uh, and the dimensions here. Certainly, I'm dean of a policy school, so there are there is a policy dimension uh, to this. There are uh, various ways that this can be approached on the gun ownership side. But I, I think the greater issue is what you're pointing to is that everything has become so politicized that we're not actually allowed to talk about these deeper issues, uh, both spiritual and emotional that are obviously a large part of the challenge here. I mean, even just to look back uh, a year ago to the borderline shooting, we still don't know what the motivation was for that particular shooter who was in his mid or late 20s to walk into this bar filled with college students and, and start shooting. And I don't think there's any doubt, at least from the little we do know about him, that this was somebody who was suffering from emotional, if not spiritual, challenges. But we we just don't seem to have the vocabulary, and I think, unfortunately, in today's politicized climate, um, people want to go right to the particular law that's going to fix all this. And as I think we both know, there isn't one. Um, so it forces us to ask these deeper questions. And, and, and sadly, as we sort of avoid the uh, the proverbial elephant in the room, and that is asking the deeper questions of the why factor, even as we sit here uh, a couple of years out from the, the tragic mass shooting in Las Vegas, we have yet to get an answer as to why. And I've often thought, okay, if we were to be able to sit down and have a reasoned public debate on this before everybody, you know, either runs for the guns, runs for the Second Amendment, or runs for the door, um, what would that dialogue 
look like, and do we do we necessarily have the ability to come and reason together, as Scripture tells us, through some of the more difficult aspects of these very important public policy debates? Because let's face it, we can come in and say, okay, let's take a strong-arm approach to this. We're going to outlaw guns. California will be gun-free zones. And, and sure enough, then somebody that has uh, an axe to grind and angst against someone will figure another way to create death and mayhem. If they don't do it by shooting up a, a school, they take a car and run it down through the middle of a, of a busy street or, you know, uh, fashion a homemade bomb. I mean, there's there's more than one way to express violence and anger. And, and and again, that's where I think maybe we're we're sort of short-sighted when it comes to really, like mature adults, uh, failing in the capacity to sit down and really reason through this. I think you're right, Craig. I, I think the, the little that we do know as far as trying to find some themes in common among these shooters, I think, one, they, they tend to be males. Uh, they tend to be younger. Uh, they tend to be those who are perceived to be uh, alienated or disconnected from uh, community. Uh, there tend to be issues in the family. Uh, oftentimes, there's, uh, they're growing up in a single-parent household. Um, and again, you can't legislate against any of those things, right? And and uh, much less the the real spiritual dimensions. Uh, you know, we're talking about evil and and some of the impact, uh, the great impact there that that is having in many of these situations. Um, it seems that most of our political discussions are devoid of these really, I think, frankly, more pertinent discussions around. Uh, emotion, psychology, and and the spiritual. From a public policy standpoint, Pete, are are you enheartened? Are you encouraged at all by some of the approach that's been uh, put forward by Governor Newsom in trying to tighten some of these laws? I know that he has uh, most recently signed a law that tightens California's so-called red flag law that will allow law enforcement officials, um, other authorities, including employers, an employee, a coworker, even a school employee to to report a person that they suspect may have uh, tendencies towards violence. Uh, You know, it it sounds good in theory. I just have to wonder in the practical uh, whether or not such laws are are really effective. Uh, Yeah, and again, uh, from a policy perspective, we just don't know. We're still at the early stages of experimenting state by state with these kinds of restrictions that put the onus on co-workers, uh, fellow students, uh, parents, family members to be making these judgments. And uh, suffice it to say, these laws have not been tested uh, at the Supreme Court level as as possibly infringing still on, on Second Amendment rights. So it's still too early, but I must say uh, it would seem that there needs to be greater empowerment of those who are close to uh, people who are unstable uh, regarding their access to guns, because certainly what has come out of several of these incidents has been uh, the the backstory that people knew that a certain student or a coworker uh, was unstable. They may have discussed uh, shooting others. That that certainly is what happened uh, down in Florida with the with the mass shooting down there at that school. Many people knew that the shooter was unstable, but they were were not empowered uh, to, to bring that to others and certainly law enforcement. Um, so I, I think it does have to be part of the policy discussion. 
Now that I've invoked Governor Newsom's name, I'm wondering, can you stay with us for a couple of moments? I want to talk a bit about his uh, his short term in the governor's mansion and uh, already his fairly staggering legacy when it comes to um, signing of legislation here in California that uh, that directly relates to your arena of, of of expertise. Can you stay with us? Of course. Pete Peterson with us today. He, of course, dean and senior fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You may often wonder, well, where do people go to learn about these matters and to engage in in debate in the public arena and establishing proposals that wind up um, before the California state legislature or on the governor's desk? Where where do you get the sense of expertise when it comes to the broader, most important public policy issues of the day? Well, certainly the public policy um, uh, school there at Dab- at uh, Pepperdine University is a great place to start. Would you like to get more information? Maybe your uh, your child or yourself, you're interested in uh, exploring a career in the arena of public policy, ever increasingly becoming more and more important these days, particularly to get people of conservative family values and people of faith to be involved in this arena. Information available online, go to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, the 69 bills that Jerry Brown thought were just too far for California that Governor Newsom thinks, yeah, this is good stuff. We'll find out what and why as our conversation with Pete Peterson, Dean and Senior Fellow with the Pepperdine School of Public Policy continues. Right now, though, we're going to step aside, get you an update on traffic, and we'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with us is Pete Peterson, Dean and Senior Fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We've been talking about not just the tragic shooting that unfolded earlier today in Santa Clarita, uh, down south of us, but um, some of the broader public policy-related issues that speak not just to the matter of gun violence and uh, the continuing debate over this issue, but many others here that uh, that trouble and challenge California. Uh, To that end, a new governor, and I never thought I'd say this, uh, Pete, and maybe you're going to think I've lost my mind, but I miss Jerry Brown. <laughs> and, and I yeah, gotta tell you, know, you I, mean, I was never I, a fan. <laughs> but I know, when I compare but, one know, against the other, I think to myself, oh, those were the good old days, were they? <laughs> well, and they were, unfortunately. You know, I, I tell friends of mine from out of state who just think that, uh, you know, they think about Governor Brown as, as Governor Moonbeam, mm-hmm. and I, I have to tell them, at least, at least on fiscal issues, uh, he was he was fairly conservative and spendthrift on these issues. And uh, to see where we've gone now, um, you know, I, I think I, I tend to agree with you. I'm sure many are longing for the days when when Governor Brown was was wielding the veto pen a lot more than than what we're seeing thus far. And sadly, as I indicated prior to the break, uh, there are 69 bills in recent tenure of uh, former Governor Brown that he chose to veto, uh, believing in many cases that they were field too far, that, and I'm quoting here, some, quote, limit to coercive power of government 
needs to be established, that we need to restrain government. And unfortunately, the current governor doesn't seem to apparently feel as if there should be any restraints on government power or the ability of the government to reach into our lives and mandate everything from whether or not we drink out of paper or plastic uh, straws to whether or not we can shampoo our hair with shampoo that comes out of a bottle in a hotel. I mean, uh, it, it seems to go so far. And of course, beyond just some of these intrusions into what ought to be personal choice. Choices. I wonder, too, in the arena of education, um, uh, how dangerous potentially you see a, a governor like Newsom in terms of signing into law legislation passed here in California uh, that wrestles more and more power away from parents and suggests that somehow the government can do a better job at raising our kids than parents can. No, you're so right. And you put your finger right on one of the, the major issues, I think, has to make us all pause as Californians. You know, we forget looking back at that uh, governor's race, that on the Democratic side, you were looking at this battle between uh, former mayor of, of Los Angeles, Villaraigosa, and and uh, then Lieutenant Governor Newsom. And it's fair to say that the, the, the allegiance that really swung that race was the CTA, the teachers union, coming in in support of, of, of Lieutenant Governor, now Governor Newsom. And it was Villaraigosa who was seen as, uh, on the Democratic side, as at least being a little bit supportive of education reform. And uh, I think it's fair to say now, as we're looking at some of the, 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 the signings and some of the vetoes that happened uh, so far under Governor Newsom, that uh, he is being supportive and, and understands that many of the reasons why uh, who delivered him into office came through uh, the CTA and allied uh, unions, public sector unions. There is one bill that's being considered, uh, perhaps you're familiar with it, that, that seems to be a bit encouraging in the arena of education as it relates to sex education. It's Senate Bill 673, the Healthy Youth Act, that's, I think, finally going to force educators to sort of show their hand. Heretofore, parents who've tried to get specifics about, well, what exactly is being taught? You give me the right to opt out, but what am I opting my children out of or allowing them into? And heretofore, many educators have been reticent to fully reveal all the details. They might give you, uh, you know, lesson titles and, and vague summaries, but really allowing parents to see what exactly is being taught um, has, has largely been elusive. No, that's right, and it's so important. You know, there was actually a, a really good piece uh, this week in uh, Real Clear Investigations, part of the Real Clear Politics Network, looking at how some of these curriculum, especially around LGBTQ issues, have uh, been implemented uh, all the way down to the pre-K level on up, uh, really without the awareness of parents. And so I agree, there, there are some bright lights up there, at least as it relates to transparency and what is being taught to our kids in uh, public schools. But we should not be naive to the fact, and this certainly comes through in this investigatory piece, that uh, there is a lobby there that is looking to implement certain kinds of curriculum that have nothing to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, all the way down to the pre-K level. And so in the very least, having some transparency about the books that are being used and what's being taught and, and what, are the, what are the implications of opting out of some of these classes certainly is a step in the right direction, but it's a small step. 
And uh, boy, it sure puts uh, not only a, a lot of additional pressure on people of faith, people that hold uh, traditional family values dear to heart uh, here in the state of California, but, but challenges before future generations. I often wonder to myself, just what kind of a mess economically, politically, socially, morally, spiritually are we leaving? What kind of an inheritance are we creating here for future generations? Well, I couldn't agree more, Craig. It's, it's part of the reason why I do the, the work that I get to do, and I'm very grateful for it in, in shaping the next generation of, of public leaders in politics and policy. But, you know, there there is not much, uh, shouldn't be much mystery as to why you see the polling out there of uh, younger generation, those in their teens and 20s, and their support for issue, for things like socialism. Uh, you know, they're supporting it because they're being taught it, right? They're not coming up with this. If you're a 15- or 16-year-old supporting socialism, you're not coming up with that idea on your own. You're being taught it. And so what's going on in the classroom, is, as Reagan often taught us, is really about what, what happens in our future generations. And unfortunately, you're right, it does put a greater burden on parents like me and my wife uh, and looking at our daughter and for the for the rest of us what what our kids are are going through particularly in public schools and the fact we have to be more on guard it's unfortunate but it is the reality it reminds me there was a book written many years ago by phyllis schlafly the late phyllis schlafly on the topic of child abuse in the classroom. And boy, uh, sadly enough, most of what she at that time was predicting that we need to be wary of because it was on the horizon is now sadly, slowly but surely, all coming to fruition. For those people that say, okay, I get it. We really need to have a, a, a more dominant role as people of faith um, in matters of public policy. I, it would be amiss if we just, just for a moment, Pete, give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of what is available for students and potential future um, uh, public policy advocates through the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Yeah, Craig. So we're we're a two-year graduate school. Uh, we we offer a two-year master's degree in public policy. Uh, certainly, we take uh, we are one of the only uh, masters in public policy programs based at a Christian university in the United States. So we take these issues around religious liberty and the importance of faith in shaping ethical and moral leaders very seriously, both inside the classroom and and the speakers that we bring here to campus in Malibu. But our students go on to really amazing careers in the in the government sector, from local government all the way up to Capitol Hill and the Foreign Service, Intelligence Services, uh, as well as nonprofits going to work in think tanks, uh, conservative think tanks in Washington, D.C., to more local ones working on particular policy issues. Well, I appreciate you taking some time. I know you get a lot of demands on yours, and so we're carving out a few moments to uh, to give us some insights into these critical issues facing Californians. Uh, we, we very much value your insight and your time. Pete Peterson, Dean and Senior Fellow at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Information available on the web at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. 5.33 on the clock, an update for you now on track. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You're familiar with 
that little sleepy section just about halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego called San Clemente. I think of it uh, just nearby a beautiful historic Dana Point. There you have some of California's um, beautiful, beautiful white sun-kissed beaches. Of course, the famous San Clemente Pier. And who could forget the retirement destination of Richard Nixon when he left office in 1973. And uh, kind of the image of him going along the beach wearing uh, beach shorts and his uh, metal detector looking for, you know, buried treasure along the San Clemente coastline. Kind of a sleepy town, but who would imagine that out of those settings would come a movement to help call worldwide attention to what's going on in modern-day slavery? And when you hear that, you say, oh, Craig, poor Craig. Here, as we've just recently marked President's birthday, Lincoln and Washington here in February, we ought to be thinking of the fact that Lincoln helped abolish slavery back in the 1860s. Well, there were a lot of important strides toward the abolishment of slavery in America at that time. But truth be told, truth be told, that action 150-plus years ago did nothing to abolish slavery permanently. It still exists in many pockets here in America it still exists to tremendous and shockingly degrees all around the world, as my next guest found out. And it led her to get involved in encouraging women everywhere to stand up and to essentially be a voice for those that have no voice. Kimberly McOwen Yim joins us today. She has co-authored a new book called Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish modern-day slavery. And Kim, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I now, when it. I say the, the end of slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation signed into law by President Lincoln back in the 1860s, that, that ended slavery of sorts and to a degree in fashion. But the reality is, in 2013, not only does slavery still exist, but in fact it's flourishing in many parts of the world. Yes, that is correct. And I, four years ago, I would have thought, as far as I knew, slavery was abolished. My understanding of slavery uh, was about the same level as my eight-year-old daughter at that time, and I thought it ended with the Emancipation Proclamation and found myself stunned to learn that there is an estimated number of over 27 million slaves in our world today and that 80% of those are women and children. We've seen focus in recent times on the issue of human trafficking, and particularly slavery as it relates to sex trades. We know certainly that there's so-called uh, sex tourism into places like Thailand and, and whatnot, but I think a lot of folks are, are completely ignorant of the fact that not only does it take place in third world countries, but a lot of that slavery is exported to the first world, meaning even America. Yes, and it's not always um, with uh, foreign women or girls or um, even men, but it's also um, with our with American children and women and men. And so we oftentimes think that it's over there and it's a problem not of our own. And what we're seeing um, is that it is. It is a problem here as well, and it is affecting even um, our suburb communities that we oftentimes take for granted are safe places. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. 
Tell me a bit about how this first kind of came on your radar screen. You're you're busy. You're raising a family. You're there yeah. in this generally beautiful little, uh, uh, very um, idyllic uh, community called San Clemente. How all of a sudden does the topic of slavery and human trafficking get on your radar screen? That's a good question because it sure wasn't until uh, uh, a friend of ours that we were that I was just doing a little bit of work with. I had just kind of gone um, back to work part time. Was working for my dad, and he invited us to see a film. It the the, the documentary Call and Response was just releasing, and he was involved in some of the marketing for the film and invited us to see the film. And so we went more as supportive friends, uh, kind of new colleagues, and I completely underestimated what I was about to learn and the impact that it would have on me. Uh, It definitely caught me off guard. I kind of knew the subject was about human trafficking, but I don't think I really understood what human trafficking was. At the time, four years ago, I kind of associated with smuggling and um, just thought this would be just another interesting film. I had no idea the impact that it would have. And that's kind of how I first kind of woke up to uh, what was going around around me. When we begin to consider the breadth and depth of the impact of this, many car, uh, parts of the world uh, where there are people being taken advantage of, people that are being lured into this, and I suppose a lot of the reasons are the same today as it was a century or two centuries ago, and that is a lot of it has to do with with power and money. We're going to explore that aspect of this equation. Also talk about some of the unlikely trades and places where you find modern-day slavery taking place. And I think as much as Kimberly was shocked to discover that this was going on at all, let alone the breadth and depth of it, I am pretty much persuaded you might be too. If you've just joined the conversation, it's a bit of a delicate one to be sure, and there might be a an opportunity here if you have young ones with an earshot of the radio to maybe busy them elsewhere. Uh, we're dealing with one of those topics that we don't necessarily want to hear about but need to hear about as we uh, pull back the blinds, so to speak, and let in the light of day on the topic of modern-day slavery. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Kimberly McGowan-Yim as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation today with Kimberly McOwen-Yim. A look at the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And I had no doubt, uh, Kimberly, there are some eavesdropping on this conversation right now that would say, well, now, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're talking about a handful. I mean, certainly we're, we're compassionate about all of this, but we must be talking about slavery that's limited to the third world. It might occasionally be exported into uh, the West, but for the most part, a lot of this is concentrated in parts of the world we never see and know nothing about. Yeah, I I can see why that would be kind of the general uh, first assumption, but when you scratch the surface, it's happening um, all around us. And uh, actually, in your neck of the woods of Northern California, there's actually a, probably a really strong presence of anti-trafficking coalitions that's going on. Actually, the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition is just around the corner from you guys, and um, there's a lot of different um, 
organizations doing amazing stuff in your area, both in your local area as well as um, addressing needs globally. But yeah, we people on the front lines of anti-trafficking fight um, have been seeing forms of slavery from uh, massage parlors to nail salons to agricultural work to domestic, domestic slaves um, through uh, uh, nannies and cleaning services, um, construction. I mean, there's it's there's been documented cases of trafficking in all those uh, regions of all those different different um, uh, different groupings uh, here in the United States. Let alone some of the um, big kind of global issues that are happening as well in some of those same things. So, um, commercial sexual exploitation is a, a huge problem and concern and this is happening in everyday towns and this is happening i think we need to be clear about this as as much as we typically think of this either in the historical context of 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 chattel or, or possessive type slavery but there's a number of different categories whether we're talking about forced labor child labor uh, debt bondage whatever the case might be and then it gets played out not just into the cases of sex trafficking that usually capture the headline news but this is this is feeding into a lot of everyday industry. I mean, let's face right. it, this is more than just, uh, well, I, let me go back to it. This is probably the same issue that's driving this today as what drove it 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that's driven this topic since the beginning of mankind, and that is power and money. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, the bottom line profitability of it is what's driving it. Yeah, the economy of it. The difference is, though, that back when it was legal, um, you know, a smart business guy would have a variety of, you know, have many slaves, and they would be an investment. They would spend kind of the equivalent of $40,000 in today's economy. It would be an investment for uh, their business. Now, it's not translating. The value of a human being, a human life, has significantly decreased, and a slave can be purchased on average between 90 and $120. So that the people are becoming more of a commodity. Human beings are being bought and sold in that commodity level price range. They're not no longer seen as an investment, but just a way to kind of get ahead, but not um, a real investment. So that's why they're um, disposable. I mean, Kevin Bales in his book wrote Disposable People. He talks about how he specifically highlights that point. Um, in his book, but um, yeah, that's that's the unfortunate part. But I think it's uh, it's an important piece to kind of recognize that um, people are discarded. So uh, a, a woman who is bought and sold on uh, Backpage, on adult services section on Backpage, um, she is bought and sold commercially, and say she gets uh, a disease or an illness or becomes too difficult. She could be put out on the street. She can be disposed of. And those are going to be another young girl or young woman that's going to cycle back in. When we consider the fact that, for example, in the last several years, just along the U.S.-Mexico border, there have been six, 7,000 people that have lost their lives as part of the, the drug cartel violence. 
you begin to get the impression and clear understanding that life is cheap, life is worthless, and many of these people are being treated simply like commodities to be bought and sold and traded, used and then thrown out when they're no longer of any value. And the sad irony is your book really reveals this goes well beyond some of the more obvious aspects of of quote-unquote modern-day slavery in the sex trades, uh, it, it touches every aspect of, of life, doesn't it? Yeah. I, uh, when I learned that um, what was going on, part of the conflict, now uh, what's going on in the Congo is a complex issue, but part of what's going on is the fight over these um, mines where minerals are being mined, and those minerals end up in our cell phones, in our computers, in our laptops, in our MP3 players. And when I saw, so our economy is very complex. And so it's adding this to complexities that are going, rather than just certain tribal wars for certain lands, it's because these minerals are so precious that ends up in my phone. So inadvertently, I'm part of the problem. And so when I began to see that, the what, what I do with my time, what I'm doing with my resources, the, the things that I buy, those are not neutral. There is, they have a more global impact than I realize. Just because I don't acknowledge it or I did not understand it doesn't mean that I'm not a, a part of it. And so when I began to see that, I felt a great responsibility to understand it, but then to see, to do the things that I can do that are within my power to make a difference. Now, I can't, Congo's a complex, I cannot go over there and create peace. There are some many amazing um, leaders in that country that are working on that. The local church and different NGOs and different uh, global leaders are involved in that. But what I can do that I found out is that I can begin to ask my electronic companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chain? What are you doing to help remedy this? The ordinary person has tremendous power when they start asking those questions, asking for slave-free products. And there's platforms that are already existing so that the average consumer can go online and can begin to ask those questions. There's platforms such as Slavery Footprint. And Slavery Footprint is in your neck of the woods in Northern California. Their their headquarters are. And that's a great platform to sign up on and start asking those questions, asking your companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chains? And that, the, these are the kinds of things that I began to see. There's tools, there's platforms, there's people that are creating these accessible things. I just need to use them. And this is the part that I can do. This reaches into almost every aspect of life, uh, both in the third and the first world. Uh, we see evidence of human slavery taking place not just again in the sex trade, which is where it tends to capture a lot of the headline stories, right. but the agricultural business. You mentioned about mining and manufacturing. We even see it in retail and domestics, which, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks, I think, are not aware of the fact that, for example, there are people that get smuggled into countries by coyotes that pay tens of thousands of dollars or obligate themselves to pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to be pulled out of horrific circumstances in a third world nation into, say, a country like the United States. And then once they arrive here, 
they're not cut loose to fend for themselves. They suddenly find now that they have an obligation to a coyote of ten grand, fifteen thousand, right. twenty thousand dollars, and now they're stuck working for years in a domestic trade, or maybe even working in a retail business. We see it going on in the flower industry, in aspects of manufacturing, agriculture. I mean, it, the list of places where this reaches its ugly tentacles into Kimberly is shocking. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm, I appreciate your, your, the, the knowledge that you do have because it's amazing to me how many there's very, you're very fortunate. I'm lucky to be on the show when you know um, as much as you do because that is absolutely correct. I mean, I think there, I thought that there are people that came to the country legally or illegally um, and, you know, you have, might have one thought about immigration, but once you're here to be additionally exploited, because you wanted a better life for your family is is a shame it's horrible i mean i i think that to, that to risk your life and spend even if you're spending money to get here and then once you're here you're additionally exploited because what, what human trafficking is, is an additional exploitation on the most vulnerable in our world. Well, say, for example, we see people that are working in the garment industry. Uh, a lot of this goes on, most notably in places like New York City, where they're yeah. bringing in seamstresses to work from countries like uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, China. They're smuggled in from overseas, oftentimes in very deplorable, inhumane circumstances. A lot of the big blue shipping containers that you see out at the Port of Oakland, fair number yeah. of them have humans that are hidden in there that have been given paltry amounts of water and and uh, and food to last eight, ten, twelve day trip across the ocean uh, into uh, into the port, and then they get pulled into, smuggled into the garment district, and they're told you're going to have to work for X number of years in order to yeah. pay off the cost of your trip and buy the way, if you try to escape or don't do a, a good job, uh, we have contacts, and they too, back in the home country, and they say, right. if you don't do what we want you to do, uh, we're going to kill your parents, or maybe you have a child at home. Sometimes they're splitting up, where maybe a husband comes to get away and, and be able to hopefully send money back home. And so then, now they are threatening the lives of your loved ones back home, and you're right. well, so well beyond the reach of the law, because they say, now, if you try to turn us into the police, they'll just deport you. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the question, what do we do? Right. I mean, what what can we do? Let, let's save that point because I, I don't want to interrupt you. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back and address that very important question. It comes down to, I guess, two questions we're going to have Kimberly address for us. Number one, why should it matter to us, particularly as Christians? All right. I'm I'm heart sick to hear that women and children are being exploited in sex trade, agriculture business, mining, manufacturing, domestic, resale. All that. But, you know, at the end of the day, why does this really matter to me? And then, if we do conclude that it should matter, what do we do about it? We'll come back to that part of the equation, our conversation with Kimberly McOwen-Yim. The book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. <laughs> 